Good evening, everybody. Uh, this is Patrick from the Poison Pen Bookstore in Scottsdale, Arizona, and thanks for tuning in to another virtual event. And tonight we have Stephen Spotswood. He's going to be talking about his brand new fourth book in the series, Murder Crossed Her Mind, in the Pentecost and Parker series. And um, Stephen signed a batch of books for us. And as always, I'll go ahead and put a link in the comments field if you'd like to buy one of the remaining books. Um, if you have questions for Stephen, go ahead and put them in, and Barbara will bring me back on screen towards the end of the hour, and I'd be happy to ask any questions that you might have. So anyway, Barbara, over to you. Thanks very much, Patrick. Steve, what a pleasure to see you, and I think you're decorated up for the holidays. Oh, no, this is just, this. I've, this these lights have been up since the pandemic, since uh, really? so spending so much time in my office. I'm like, I would like it to look a little joyful year-round, so... These are oh, why not? I know. Yeah. No, that's really very, very nice. We have lights sort of like that all around our house and up our saguaro cactus. Um, but um, what we're not allowed to keep them there all year round. Uh -huh. I know. It makes me really sad. <laughs> there you are. So we are talking tonight about Murder Crossed Your Mind, which is the fourth book in this wonderful series. And I have to say that you are consistently... Um, fortunate in the New York Times book review because Sarah Weinman is a serious fan of your work and she gave you yet another rave in the column. I know she really is. She's doing her damnedest to like get to launch the series and get people to to read it. I'm I'm super grateful. Um, like all, I love all my readers equally but some I love more equally than others. Well, you should. So I was thinking about it this afternoon. You know, why is it that Sarah's, I mean, there are a lot of obvious reasons. There's a lot of humor in it. The writing is excellent. The characters are interesting. The plots are good. I mean, all of that. But why is it that um, it has such an uh, appeal to Sarah and other people? And I was thinking that in a lot of ways, this is not so much Holmes and Watson as Nero and Archie. It really is. I mean, you know, we have the townhouse in New York. We have a person who doesn't leave home easily that has, you know, a handicap, multiple sclerosis. We have a leg man, only in your case, it's a leg woman. Um, and, you know, I remember how much I loved the, the Neuro Wolf series. And I'm thinking, and actually, coincidentally, you actually won a Neuro Wolf Award. Yay. Um, for, uh, was it the first one? It was the... Yes, the first one. Yeah. Right. So in 2021, you won the Neuro Wolf um, Award for Best American Mystery. I have to say, I'm really pleased that my own author, Fred Weissel, just won the Neuro Wolf Award for. Oh, fantastic. Um, um, I mean, I'm not a publisher anymore because we sold the publishing company in 2019, but Steve was an author that I brought on board and worked with him on this book. So I'm really happy that. Um, that he won. But I mean, and obviously there's some, you know, Holmes Watson established a kind of pattern, right? For a genius sleuth and a, a leg man. Um, but it's nice to have variations of it. So what are you a NeuroWolf fan? Did that inspire you? Oh my God, yeah. Um I'm a huge NeuroWolf fan. And, and it is it is a direct inspiration. Um back in 20 18 2017 2018 I started a reread not even a reread I started reading the series um from the first book he wrote to the last um in order and if I didn't have it in my collection I ordered it through eBay and that, that took me like six months of like reading from like 1935 through like 1971 72 um and 
it, as I was reading, I was thinking, um, and you know, like Nero, like Archie and and, and Nero, like progress through time, but they never change. Like they change the world, change the the world. They say the same, and the world changes around. All right? Them. Can I just interrupt you for oh. a second and tell you that yeah. something came up? I thought you'd enjoy this, and I'll forget it if I don't say it now. Um, it came up when I was talking to Mike Lupica um, last week, introducing his new Spencer novel. And what we concluded was, for exactly those reasons you say, that he's basically writing Boston Brigadoon. You know that the the city, everything moves on. Yeah. The characters yeah. don't. And I think, you know, that's a similar pattern in a lot of mystery series. Yeah. And as I was reading them, I was like, if I if I were ever given the rights to Nero Wolf, what what would I do? Like, how would I write them today? And I decided I I wouldn't. I don't I don't it wouldn't hit um, the same way in the in in the 21st century. Um, but that started me thinking about, like, what could I do with that structure? Um, with like the very basic, like genius detective, um, wisecracking, like like woman with a hard boiled voice, um, even with their like uh, the chef slash housekeeper, um, like in a in a in this case a Brooklyn brownstone um, instead of like the like the West Thirty Eighth Street, um, and that's and that's where this started. I just like. It's like this is interesting, and I just I wrote the I ended up writing the first chapter of Fortune Favors the Dead, um, just sort of as like a fun little exercise origin story for these characters. And by the end of it, I'm like, okay, I think this has legs enough that I can I can write a book, um, and I enjoy it. I did not re like I like Nero Wolf does not have like the the cultural kit like power of like Agatha Christie or Sherlock Holmes. I did not know how many people loved Nero Wolf. Um, I thought I was writing something that was just like a little niche fun thing for me. Um, and I was like, as long as I enjoy it, then it will be worthwhile. And then it ended up, you know, sold and being published. And then I found out that, oh, every, many people remember Rex Stout's work, um, which is great. I, I, I think it's great. Um, but yeah, so there was a direct. I I owe, I owe my career as it stands to to Rex Stout right at the moment. Yeah, I love it. But when you were reading Rex Stout or Haven, I I'm not going to pick up my phone to do it. But do you, did you look up how many books Rex Stout wrote before he thought about Nero Wolf? It's a phenomenal number of books. Yeah, I I did look it up. Um, and I have never read. And, and there's there's some non. Nero Wolf still floating around. Um, I have never read any of them. <laughs> I should at some point, but I know, I know he was like, he wrote a lot before he even conceived of Nero Wolf, which is astounding. Um, well, but I point, I point that out a lot of times to say that, you know, sometimes writers don't really come up with their, you know, their iconic whatever it might be until later in the game i mean and he i think he wrote 40 some books before he ever i'd have to look up the real number um and of course that was in an era when it was easier to do you know it was pulp publishing a lot of it you know guys like donald westlake and you know larry black even writing as a female some of the time um and there were a lot of avenues to publication for uh, not just books you know but magazines and the whole bit mm -hmm. um and you know, I've I've often wondered what was the moment when he thought about you know this 
large man from Montenegro, you know, living on West 30, 38th Street. And why did he love orchids? And why was he a gourmand? Where did Fritz come from? And and then there's Archie, who's basically mm -hmm. a white man. And you've got, um, you know, you've got uh, Willow Jean Parker. You had to give her a background so that she could be um, athletic and um, she could be an Archie Goodwin in female form with some credibility. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's that was the thing. I think one of the reasons that Nero Wolf worked so well is that it took the the classic English murder mystery uh, and injected it with like the hard boiled American voice. And it was like I keep saying it's like peanut butter and chocolate. It was just like a fantastic combination. Um, and the thing that I like one of the things I wanted to bring to it was like like twenty like twentieth century like the psychological realism of like like giving the characters a background and also these like my characters change like they will change over time like they do change from book to book like the the events of the books will like add up and weigh on them um just as history moves forward um but yeah like giving figuring out how like why will is the way she is um and letting the readers know was important um and as we go into like in this in this fourth and like Lillian is kind of a mystery so far, um, and it's she's starting to get cracked open in like Murder Crossed Her Mind and even much more in the the next book, which I'm I'm editing now. Right, but no, you certainly reveal things about her past. Why did you decide to give Miss Pentecost? Why did you decide on multiple sclerosis? I a, a, a couple of reasons. Um, like I, one of my jobs for going on now just over 20 years has been writing um, in the, about federal healthcare, um, about people working in like VA and DOD. And, um, and so I've like been writing about physicians and, and patients so, like dealing with long-term, like very like chronic long-term illnesses for a long time. Um, and it's always like acutely aware that there aren't a lot of like protagonists in like like a series in series protagonists who like have a chronic illness like that um like it's not it's very underrepresented um as for why multiple sclerosis i think it, for certain practical reasons one it was known in 1945 like it was called multiple sclerosis in 1945 like they knew they didn't know like the the mechanisms of it but i could have them talk about it um and we would understand in the modern day like what they're talking about um it was something that was it goes up and down like so as the story is needed she like her symptoms can can worsen and they can lessen but at the same time it, it will always get a little bit worse and a little bit worse um as time marches on um i also think like when i was writing it um was around the same time that selma blair the actress um went public with her diagnosis um and so i think that like printed heavily on my just just like well, what you needed what you needed was to give pentecost some kind of physical handicap something that would make her need somebody like willow jean to be yeah. a league man um was, yeah. you know and so what you needed was something that wasn't fatal but was debilitating yeah um, it was pragmatic yeah yeah. yeah. So, I mean, no, I think, I think it works very well. And I, you know, I, I imagine that it, it's, you know, it's a, it's a 
I didn't do it maybe for this reason, but I was thinking that people who actually have multiple sclerosis that read your books, you know, probably enjoy seeing somebody with that much agency. I have I have had a few emails and uh, even people coming up to me at events um, saying, like basically saying you that I've gotten it, saying I've gotten it right, um, at least so far, uh, which means a lot because that's like one of the things I'm, I try and take care with. Um, is to show just how these kind of chronic illnesses are always there. Like even when our symptoms are like baseline. Well, and also, you know, it gives the housekeeper a sort of added role in the sense that, you mm -hmm. know, she's always concerned about feeding her and keeping up her, um, you know, upper strength. And so Willow has to, you know, carry food to her sometimes when they're off doing things. So I think you do all that very well. So hoarding is, a, is something that has come to everybody's consciousness a lot more i think recently there's a famous case in new york you know where in new york city where all that was so why did you decide you know well tell us the background of the story and then we can talk about the hoarding uh so the background of the story um it's it's basically a take on the man who knew too much except it's a woman who knew too much um it's uh lillian and will are approached by an old adversary, Forrest Whitson, who is ba who's basically the the real life Perry Mason of New York, um, a defense attorney who we last saw in the second book, um, be basically an asshole to Lillian uh, when she was on the stand. Um, and he's worried because a dear friend of his, an elderly woman, Vera Bodine, has gone missing. Um, and Vera is a very interesting woman. Vera has uh, a photographic memory, which served her very well in her years as a secretary for a, a high profile law firm um, and also served her very well during the war when she was helping the FBI hunt Nazis on American soil. Uh, and she's also um, a recluse and a hoarder. She rarely leaves her apartment um, uh, in her very cramped, very, very filled apartment. Um, and she's now missing uh, and Whitson has hired Lillian and Will to find out uh, who has taken her. And, you know, there are a lot of suspects, including Nazis, which is fun, um, as fun as Nazis can be. Um, but you mentioned the 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 famous case in New York. Margaret um, Brothers, I think it is. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So uh, I was back in book three, I was looking through the New York Times archives um, just to see what new stories were popping up um around that that I could like you know they Lillian and Will read the paper and I like to just throw things in and figure out like what's actually going on in New York uh in like 19 like 1947 um and I came across that story of the two brothers um the hoarders in the apartment and like this rich history <laughs> and this is the very bizarre case um and I it was I was fascinating it was like so fascinating I was like, I can't put this in this book as just a throwaway thing. Um, but that is uh, what inspired as like sort of like the launching point for for the the main story of murder cross your mind, or at least the the the, the launching board for Vera. Um, she, she became a much more complex person. Um, but yeah, just like that, those two like the those two gentlemen and the brothers and well, there, I mean, there's, you know, there are more cases of that that surface out in, here in Arizona. We've had two or three um, of people who are animal hoarders. 
Well, uh, there's a dreadful case that has been going on here, although I don't think she was a hoarder. I think she was, um, it was a con she was running. But anyway, a woman who took in multiple, multiple dogs and then didn't care for them was hoarding the dogs. But I think it was for the money. She was getting some kind of boarding fee or something and then just pocketing, you know, sort of like the funeral homes that take in money for funerals and then, you know, put the bodies out back and never have the funerals. So, I mean, it's really fascinating the lengths that people will go to, you know, to to make money or, you know, survive while doing really dreadful things, you know, mm -hmm. like not conducting funerals or abusing animals. But at least, at least the hoarders are in Vera, you know, they're not hurting anybody. They're they're just hoarding. No, no, she's she's actually a very conscientious, altruistic woman. She's just yes, who has more depth to her as we keep going along, um, as we discover. So you know, are you a Shakespearean fan? Is did Richard the Third the first thing we'll do? We'll kill all the lawyers. Was that also part of a part of this book? No, no, it wasn't. I, I mean, I am a Shakespeare fan. I was a I was a playwright long before I was a novelist. Um, so yeah, I'm a big fan of Richard III. Um, and just, I think also just like Will is not a fan of lawyers. Um, I think they, rep to, and this is her, from her voice. So it's like, she just, they, to her, they re they represent the, just people with power gaming the system. Um, or in the case of defense attorneys, like people trying to get criminals off that Lillian and her have like, worked very hard to try and, get in jail um and her her preconceived notions are are upended a little bit um in this book at least where where forest is concerned but but yes it's but it's it's lawyers, prejudice <laughs> right the lawyers come in because vera for decades actually worked two decades anyway um worked as an assistant for an attorney of a law firm um and I guess it's pronounced bookbinder, even though the spelling is South African, B-O-E-K, bookbinder, mm -hmm. uh, yep. or Dutch, you know, whatever you want to say. Um, but anyway, she worked for a law firm where she was invaluable for her astonishing memory. She didn't need to take, you know, notes, whatever it is. Um, and that's why the FBI, you know, tried to use her during the war, or did use her during the war to try to identify Nazis, but it turns out in the book that maybe this maybe this memory is a weapon against her. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's it, it was it was it became like a sort of philosophical thing as the book went on. As I was, was thinking about it, and as Will's thinking about it, of like, what if you could never forget anything? Um, right. Like every little slight, every terrible thing, every awfulness, every bad story you read in the paper, like all the stuff that we forget. It just slips out of our mind, but it's all in Vera's head somewhere. Um, and what does that, what does that do to you? I, I like it. It makes sense. She would never want to leave the house. I think is the, is the conclusion that that they come that will comes to pretty. Well, I was going to say that you know she goes from being um, you know a working woman, a valuable employee, and all she ends up living in her apartment up at the top of the apartment building, a small apartment building, gradually being surrounded by skyscrapers. And, you know, the whole New York real estate game and airspace and all, you know, it was just a wild, 
wild thing. My sister and her husband uh, lived in a co-op that made a killing by selling its air rights, its airspace rights, so they could build something alongside. I mean, only in New York does this kind of stuff go on, you know. But anyway, I can see her in this kind of older, respectable, smaller scale apartment building while high rises are beginning to go all around her. Uh, but there she is living um, up on the top floor and some company, some agency is actually uh, sending mail to various tenants offering them a, uh, a premium if they'll move out. So, you know, the sort of assumption is that this is a developer looking to evict everybody from the building, which is a fairly common tactic in New York City, you know, people trying to dislodge um, the, what what do they call it, rent, rent protection, rent something or other. Rent control, yeah. Yeah, thank you, rent control. Um, and so there's another thing, you know, going on in the book is um, who's, who is sending letters. I love the fact that $300 was enough to get people to move. I mean, you know, you really are in 1947 and yeah. money is so, it was, what does $300 equate to now? I don't know without like looking at the, the inflation calculator, <laughs> um, <laughs> but it's up there. It's in, you know, I'm going to do it. Uh, inflation calculator. Well, it was sort of, you know, the, the point is that it was $300 was enough to get several people thinking that they would take the money and, um, and move. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I actually don't want to do that. I don't want to like accidentally. No, no, no. It's fine. I'm <laughs> You don't really, I'm just, pointing out that, you know, money money tossed around in crime novels today has so many zeros attached to it, you know, it's $300 sounds for a minute like that can't be right, you know, and then when you think about it, it was. I think the average rent in Manhattan at the time was like was under 60 bucks a month. Um, it like varied depending on where in Manhattan you were. Well, I can tell you from personal experience that the rent for an apartment in Palo Alto, California in 1962, when I got married and moved out of my dorm at Stanford, uh, was $110 a month. You know, so that isn't, that is, you know, for 1947, 60 some dollars, that's not a, a big, you know, a big jump. Yeah. I mean, you could buy a house in the mid 60s in various places you could buy a house for thirty thousand dollars at six percent mortgage rate so you know the the numbers today are so big and so you know that it's hard for people i think to to recognize that those are still real figures at the time that you are employing yeah yeah right so anyway, so we have Vera and she's gone missing is the problem. And so the first order of business is to determine whether she's not missing, but somewhere in her apartment <laughs> underneath all the hoarding, but nobody, nobody finds her there. Um, and so where's Vera is a big question in this book. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah, it's interesting. It was interesting going, starting with a missing persons case instead of a murder case. Um, it was it kind of like there's a tick I, I say early on it's a tick there's a ticking clock involved um like there's a there's a living person presumably hopefully a living a living person that's dependent on on all of this um on them moving quickly um and that's fun it's like you get to start it's like a start it's a a nice starter's pistol um 
for the beginning of a book. It is, right. Patrick has just messaged me that $300 in 1947 was equivalent to $4,100. So, you know, enough yeah. uh, for many people to actually think about moving. Yeah. And um, But before, before we have Vera gone missing and her very concerned um, once upon a time employer bringing the case to Pentecost and Parker to saying, where is Vera? Uh, there was another another crime that actually opens the book, one just against Willow. So, you know, I think I think it's an interesting question as a reader. Do you think this is just a, a one-off or is it just presenting complications that have to be resolved or what? Um, what did, did, are you a plotter? Did you set this book up, you know, uh, or do you just kind of work your way along? This one, uh, I didn't, I didn't do a detailed outline of this one. Um, but so, uh, so there are two, this is the first time I've done like, like straight out subplots. Um, right. there's two of them. Mm -hmm. Um, and the first one is like the is basically the cold open of the book. Um, I always like to use the the first chapter as a cold open. Um, and essentially, Will is mugged. Um, she gets scammed by a pair of of like con artists um, who draw her in and mug her. This uh, this young man woman team, um, and she, they take her they take her bag, which also includes her gun. Um, like her brand new gun that replaced the one the cops have from the previous book. Um, and she is just deeply embarrassed and ashamed of this. Like she just doesn't, she doesn't want to tell Ms. Pentecost. She doesn't want to tell the cops because it's like, she's supposed to know what she's doing. This was not supposed to happen to her. Um, and so like, this is a, this is like a personal complication for her while all of the, the main mystery is going on. Will is trying to sort this out. Um, and that's, and that I found that fun. It does not, you know, it's like a, a subplot that does not immediately tie in to the main mystery, but like just throws up these massive hurdles, like emotional and physical and time constraints um, where you have her like trying to solve this thing under the radar without Ms. Pentecost knowing. Right. Um, well, and it was even worse because they're her, the house keys, the car keys, the checkbook, you know, or, or deposit slips, I guess it was. Um, it gets worse as things go on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, we carry, I mean, now if somebody takes your phone and, you know, you have failed to have, you know, whatever, so people can't get in it, your entire life is in your phone. But for women, very often, much of our lives is in our purse. And so, you know, to lose it would would give people multiple opportunities to intrude into our life. Yes. Yeah. Like the way she flattened the tires of the car, realizing that the car keys were one of the casualties of this whole deal, and then suddenly realizing that they could figure out which car the keys belonged to and steal it. You know, she has to hot foot it up there, let the air out of the tires in order to um, prevent them from driving away. Yeah. And it's just like, it's like a little domino of like, okay, I, I, I gotta let the air out of the tires. Oh, now I have to get home. I don't have any money. I have to get spare change off the sidewalk for a bus. Oh, we have to take a cab to the crime scene because <laughs> we don't have the car. And then we have to go back and get the car and spend like an hour at midnight pumping up the tires just to get back home. Um, 
it's a, it becomes a mess. Like while I was writing this, figuring out the logistics of everything she had to do in order to keep it a secret. Right. Um, I was like, this is a mess. Will, what are you doing? <laughs> um, Do you know, I mean, I understand that. Either yeah. She was taken for a sucker. Um, she she thought she was doing a good thing um, in protecting a woman. And it turned out that it was just, you know, um, she was taken for a mug. She yeah. was mugged all the way around. I No, I love that. I thought it was a really interesting, um, you know, thread running underneath everything. Almost like one of those running gags in a play. You know, mm -hmm. or there's something going on that, you know, that keeps going along. And so we have, then we have Vera Missing, and we have um, a law firm connected with that. Um, the lawyer that she worked for, the other people in the firm, and then the lawyer who decided he wanted to be a criminal. Well, he, did, he became a criminal attorney and therefore has moved out of the firm or was moved out of the firm. Um, those are the main players. Um, mm -hmm. Then off we go, looking for Vera and trying to figure out what happened to her. Were you influenced at all by murders in the building? Not at the time. Um, I had not. I'm trying to think if I, I I came to murders in the building late. Um, so I think when I was writing this one, I had not seen it yet. Um, so no. Uh, I do love it. I'm only I'm only halfway through the second season now because uh, it's one of the shows that my wife and I have to watch together. <laughs> we have to like <laughs> sync up uh, our schedules to watch it. Um, but yeah, yeah. I it, so I wasn't, but um, but also just like I think like the like oh you have a a building full of suspects is is I didn't invent it. Murders in the building didn't invent it. Somebody I don't know who invented it, but um, it is a nice. It's a trope. Um, and it's a fun trope because it's like you have a whole slew of disparate individuals, like lots of weird personalities, some of them conflicting, um, that could all very possibly be suspects. And it's just, that was fun. That was fun to like populate this little apartment building. Well, that's it. You do end up populating if you have an apartment building, you know, um, you do. And that's different than a, you know, a, I mean, Agatha Christie country house structure usually there's kind of a basic family unit or some kind of cohesive unit, although you can bring in, you know, outsiders by like having at a party. Do you remember the Rex Out book where there's a banquet and there's a death at the banquet and therefore only the people eating at yes. the banquet and the wait staff, you know, were suspects. And I thought that was Stout being so clever and taking that Christie structure, you know, and transforming it from like a castle in Scotland to was surrounded by snow or something, um, you know, to a banquet hall in New York City. But the object is the same, and then that you you severely limit the circle of suspects, and, but you also have to insert an investigator into that circle. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. And in and in this book, like the the suspects are not limited to the apartment building, but. It is. It is fun. I do remember that banquet book. I cannot remember which one it is. Um, I can't either. I'm. I'm terrible on titles anymore. But you know, um, it was always one of my favorites in the sense that I thought he tweaked a classic form in yet a, you know a refreshing way, which I like. Another thing, um, a little homage. I don't know if you intended it to Rick Stout here, but Rick Stout books always had step backs in the sense that that Neurowolf figured out what 
what the deal was. And then he would invite people to his office. You know, there was the yellow chair and, you know, all the rest of it. And, and so, you know, the crime would come to a conclusion, but then there would be a step back to the solution and so forth. In this book, you have, you have several step backs, you know, we get, we, we have something happening and then we have a step back and then we have a step back. And I, I think that's fun. You know, it's a lot different than a thriller where you just drive it to one gigantic bang ending and then yep. it's over. Yeah. I like, this is, I don't know if I'm ever gonna be able to like, I'll ever get the chance to write the like classic drawing room ending again. Like this is like, I think even in this book or even previous ones, Will has been like, that is not how this actually works. We do not get the suspects all in a room, right. have a showdown. And in this book, we get the suspects all in a room. <laughs> we have a showdown. Um, but I also like, I've, I think in like most of my books, I have like multiple endings. Um, mostly because there are multiple, like in this one, you know, we've got, we've got the main mystery and then two subplots and then assorted things to deal with. Um, so like, it's really like, it, it's it's like a return of the king ending where it's like you have the, the, yeah. the climax and the climax and the climax. Um, or I have like the, the like an emo like a, the mystery climax and then an action climax and an emotional climax that are not necessarily all synced up. It's like, they're separated a little bit. Um, well, it's true yeah. that the that the opening, most of the time in mysteries, the various things that happen all kind of dovetail together into one one plot. But the the opening of this book, the mugging of Willow, doesn't really doesn't really track the whole rest of the you know the the story. It's it's a thing in itself. It's not going to dovetail. Or maybe it will. We don't want to spoil endings here. But in theory, it isn't going to dovetail into the main plot, and therefore it does need its own ending. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Or, or you could say to be continued. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't necessarily have to wrap it up, but I think generally fans do prefer to have you know all these yeah. loose ends tied together. I do. Yeah, I do. I do too. Um, with the occasional thread at the end that will lead into like other another book um we don't want to talk about that <laughs> yeah. well sarah wyman in the new york times already like she, she I know, know. Really, but she was she was like oh that ending um right. so uh yes but even the subplot in this one even will's subplot um those characters are coming back um Ooh. like that the incidents here will have ramifications so I felt like, you know, you've written these four books and then the way this one plays out, you're kind of opening it up to a bigger, a bigger screen, a bigger, you know, whatever you want to call it, but you're going to expand the universe and up, up the, up the whole thing. Yeah. I'm, I, I like, I like expanding the, I really like adding more supporting players to their bench. Mm -hmm. um, that I can bring back like there's a character in this book that I introduced back in book two and should an old circus friend of Will's um, right. who gets to come back in a, in a really fun way um, and and yeah I do like I do have like sort of a a loose structure planned for the first seven books in the series like I know mm. how they're about how they're escalating um in different ways and they they yeah they i, I do like to i do want to like 
expand them. And also I just like playing with the, the different um, tropes, um, the different hard boiled tropes, the different mystery tropes. Like it was the fortune favors of the dead was a locked room mystery. Uh, Murder under skin was big city detective goes to a small town, gets in trouble. Uh, Secret Stipe and Blood was was serial killer, which is not a classic trope, but it's still a trope. Um, and this one is the 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 woman who knew too much. Um, yeah, so I get to yes, <laughs> so like so that's the way I'm sort of like expanding their world while at the same time playing in the big sandbox of of um, like 20th century now 21st century crime drama. Right. Well, it's fun. And I have to say that one of the consequences of the pandemic for many readers was that they finally had time to go back and read classics. And so you may be finding a slightly more educated reading audience than you would have before that, because the classic section at, at the Poison Pen just keeps spinning. Yeah, I was I had a the, the launch event last night. Um, it was an in-person event. And I asked, like, somebody asked like where the inspiration came from and i mentioned rexed out and i was like does anyone know who, who rexed out near a wolf are and like three quarters of the audience nodded um and a vast wide range of ages um from like teens through as high as you can go um they they knew they knew who near a wolf was well that's you know that is encouraging because i think I think many of us worry that people are not reading as much as they did. I did think that the pandemic did, in fact, bring people back to books. And I'm hoping that that, that won't go away. And, you know, since streaming now has got, you know, all kinds of stuff going on with it, which was the other thing that we all did during the pandemic, you know, and stream away. And I love that. And I thought it was great um, for so many stories to become, you know, long form television and the whole bit. But um, that means that people aren't reading while they're watching. Um, mm. So I'm hoping that the sheer cost of other forms of entertainment, which is just skyrocketed, does mean that books, while books have climbed in price, but nonetheless, all the way around, it's still, it's still more for your money. And you can pass it on and you can reread it. You know, it's not like a theater ticket or, you know, a ticket to the Super Bowl or something. Or I think about what people spend on Taylor Swift and Beyonce, you know, and I'm just like so flabbergasted. I mean, you can create a library. Oh, my God. Don't make me compete with Taylor Swift and Beyonce. That I, That's a losing proposition. <laughs> but oh, I understand what you mean. Yeah. I'm just talking about the people who are actually willing to pay, you know, that kind of money to attend something. And, and they're they're going for the experience. Yeah. You know, I mean, so people are willing to pay thousands of dollars to share in an experience. So, you know, a $27 book, um, which is also an experience that you can share with people um, from an economic standpoint, looks you know <laughs> a little saner than it does. I, I, you know, I think they make wonderful gifts. I, I do think um, that, yeah. you know, and, and it says a lot, I think, if people take care to figure out a book to give somebody because you have to really know a person to try to I mean that's what I do all the time but but for a lot of people um that's not a a normal everyday activity and to try to take care to you know we, we go through that whole reference interview at the store somebody comes in I want to buy a book for my grandmother you know and then you have a whole reference interview you go through about trying to define grandma, you know, who's grandma and what is she actually reading? Yep. And you can triage your ways, your way there. 
in various ways. You know, where, where does she live? You know, what did she do? Do you know anything else she's read? What are her hobbies? You know, and, and eventually you can kind of narrow down something that is likely to appeal to grandma. You know, um, yeah. it's a fun exercise. It really is. Yeah. Yeah, no, books are books are great gifts. I love I love giving books as gifts. And they they fit nicely under a tree or in a stocking. <laughs> Easy to gift wrap. Right. Which I really like. Well, we already know that you are progressing on because you've mentioned that you are editing book five and you have a plan all the way up to seven. Um any thoughts beyond that? Yeah, yeah. I, when I say I have a plan through seven, it's not like the end of the the series. Like I have, I just know, I, I know definitively that far. And then I have like various ideas for, for different stories after that and where to go from there. Um, I mean, yeah, hopefully, hopefully I will get to write them right now. I'm, I'm set through, I'm contracted through book five. Um, then hopefully we will re-up the contract. Um, I can keep going. Um, yeah, I'm gonna I'm going to keep writing on the idea on the like the idea that I will get to write them personally. Well, the fiction bug bug has clearly bitten you. Um, Mr. Lupica pointed out, Lupica, I always get his name wrong. Anyway, that he hopes the writing gig will continue because he has nothing to fall back on. Yeah. Jeffrey Deaver said the same thing when we did his book launch last week. It's kind of like, you know, if this writing thing doesn't work out, I haven't got anywhere to go. God. Um, but, you know, you have an interesting background in that, you know, you're a playwright, a journalist, and an educator. What do you think, you know, I mean, would you actually want to go back to, to journalism at this point? Oh, I, I still do. Like, that's, so like, I have I have other jobs, like, including, I still write for um, a magazine that covers federal health care. Like, that's like one of my my uh -huh. day jobs. Um, I, I write like five or six or seven stories a month. Um, about veterans affairs and the department of defense um and all the like the I've, I've been writing for them since the first wave of veterans returned from iraq and afghanistan um and i actually i i enjoy it a lot uh i enjoy journalism a lot i enjoy like writing in that field a lot um partly because i have like 20 years of institutional knowledge um, right. writing about that subject which might rival like most of the people writing in that field right now um at least for on that subject particular subject matter um so yeah so i'm i'm i haven't left journalism <laughs> um and i haven't left teaching i still teach playwriting uh i usually i'm down to like one class a year um at my alma mater um but like that teaching scratches an itch um like that that is a particular joy um, that I don't think I'm going to give up. Anytime. So your, is your your wife is a is a writer too, isn't she? She's a young adult author. Yeah, she writes she writes YA fiction. Yeah, yes, and she's also a, a children's librarian. That's her that is her day job. Well, YA fiction is certainly a fascinating era. It, I mean, area right now. I mean, I can't believe how much I got a a whole thing from Shelf Awareness today, describing a book that I'm still having trouble figuring. I don't even know what words mean anymore. So when they tell, I'm serious. You know, well, this is described as a sapphic, mecha uh, fairy tale featuring a sadist. 
I, I, I can, first place I have trouble with this concept, even more so than it's being published by Disney. But the word that threw me was, I mean, sapphic I get, you know, sadist I get now, but mecha really threw me. Um, and I like the way they throw words about as though you're, you're you know, I, I finally figured it out, it's robots. So what we have here is a version of Alice in Wonderland with sapphic sadistic robots. Um, and, but, but the way it all comes at you, you know, and I'm thinking, is, I mean, I feel like it's a language quiz part of the time, you know, to try to figure out what is it um, that this book is actually about. And there's an assumption, clearly, when it's sent out on a very broad scale, that most people will know what this language is. So I feel, I don't know if I'm aging rapidly out of the game or or what. I I could not say. I was also, I was also like, I know four or five of those those words. Okay. <laughs> Well, it's young adult fiction. I mean, yeah, yeah that's, that's what it means. Well, as long, like, like, I'm sure, like, it's like, okay, the young, as long as the age group that is reading it understands it. Um, though there should be, like, maybe a, a, a translation for booksellers. For old people. <laughs> Absolutely true. No, I'm just fascinated. You know, language is, is changing. I mean, everything else keeps evolving, you know, faster and faster in our society. But one of the things that truly is rapidly, constantly kind of, evolving as language, you know, new terms to fit all these new things. And I think that's great. But, you know, I do feel that sometimes they really ought to come with, you know, kind of a translation at the beginning, so you know what it is. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's, it's probably like cycling faster now, but it's not new because like, I, I have bookmarked on my computer, like pages and pages of 1940s slang um, right. that a lot of it, a lot of it we know just from watching old movies um but a lot of it is just like obscure incomprehensible that if you heard that word you'd be like i have no idea what that is in reference to sure, and then i've got circus slang which is an entirely different like, genre of language yeah absolutely true um you know i mean slang all depends on contemporary cultural references you know and so as society moves on you know so does that i mean how many people will understand you know hoarding toilet paper once we've moved any farther away from the pandemic i mean people in 20 papers seriously you yeah. know it was a great cartoon in the New Yorker, as a matter of fact, I remember. But, you know, you had to sort of be there during the pandemic and not be able to buy toilet paper to have any idea why that would matter. Yeah, yeah, that's that is interesting. I, I do wonder, like, how, like, what the, the cultural impact of the pandemic and writing about the pandemic and talking about it is going to look like moving forward. Um, I know a, a lot of series, people like writers that write contemporary series, like, basically just hand waved it away um yeah i can recommend a book called past lying by val mcdermott which is a brilliant it's a brilliant mystery but more than that she she does it all during the early and very draconian lockdown that the uk you know um imposed and and it's absolutely fascinating. She's one of the few people, there's a um, an Irish writer, Catherine Ryan Howard, who wrote a really terrific book. And the whole thing depends on lockdown in Ireland. I mean, the, mm -hmm. the, whole, the whole mystery can't work if it weren't that, that lockdown? Oh, that's great. You know, so, 
But I agree with you that I think most people just kind of like to, you know, we'd all like to wave it away in our rearview mirror. And I I don't know how it is where you are, but where I am, if you go out any given night in Scottsdale to dinner or whatever else, you'd think the pandemic had never happened. Mm-hmm. No, it's it's the same. It's, it is the same here. Um, and it's interesting having like written for 20 years about people dealing with PTSD and dealing with traumatic events um, and dealing or not dealing with them. Um, It's fascinating to see it play out on a a national level of like, oh, we're just going to like take all of the trauma of three years of, of that. And we're just going to shove it down um, and not talk about it. Um, Yeah, that's, it is it is it will be an interesting time going forward it will be and i think i think that it'll take writers to achieve some distance before it's a comfortable thing to write about patrick why don't you come and join us and see if there are any questions from the audience or contribute your own thoughts to this discussion and thanks by the way for looking up the the dollar equivalent stephen was aware that's a pretty handy calculator i wasn't aware of that that's very handy you can put the year and the amount and all that. Um, bah, bah, bah. Renee wants to know, Barbara, are you still hoarding toilet paper? No, <laughs> I didn't hoard, hoard toilet paper. Um, to be really basic, I have a Toto toilet. So toilet paper was largely irrelevant. Let's see here. Um, hmm. People are asking more about the hoarding part of the book. Yeah, I remember reading that there are a number of books about the Collier brothers, and uh, didn't one of the brothers die inside the horde, and they had a hard time finding him for a while? Yeah, it was very something yes. like that. Yeah, yeah, right. And it was they, a brownstone up in up in Harlem, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And I think I was told last night uh, that Corey Doctorow wrote a book inspired by that. That's right. Which I did not know until I was told last night. Um, That's right. There was a little, a short little book called The Ghosty Men, which is about that case, which we used to have here at the store. But uh, let's see. And they found like, you know, part of a plane. They found like pianos. They found all kinds of stuff. Apparently one of the brothers would go out late at night and just bring stuff back into the brownstone. Interesting. You know, one of the things I think is really interesting about it before we move on is the structural integrity of the building in which all this is being kept because, you know, I mean, the sheer weight of old newspapers is is a lot, pianos is a lot. Um, And I I sometimes, you know, I mean, this woman in your book is living (laughs) on the top floor. And, you know, at some point you have to ask yourself whether the building structurally is going to be able to support the weight of the hoarding or whether, you know, there's going to be some kind of, it doesn't happen in your book, but yeah. potentially there could be an enormous crash. Yes. That sure. does not, <laughs> but yeah, no, it could. Um, there's a question about, um, do these books need to be read in order? No, no, not, not to date. Um, I think you can, I mean, I'm not, I'm the, I'm possibly not the person to ask, uh, but I think, I think you could pick up four. Um, and I do, I try and do a, a good job of introducing all the players and setting the stage um, so that you don't have to know 
any of the the previous events. Well, this is only book four, and the yeah. first three are available in paperback, so it's not as monumental a test as if you found book nine in a series and you went you know, yeah. all the way back. Ideally, well, you know, yeah. Yeah, but ideally, if you start reading book four, if that's the first one you come upon as a consequence of this, for example, discussion, uh, you then go back to book one and read your way forward through one, two, and three. You could do that. Yeah, yeah I think there, there's like a, there is emotional growth that happens with the the characters um, throughout, but like there are not like facts and figures that you need to know in order to understand what's going on. No, and the mystery is complete. You know, it isn't oh, yeah. that he's leaving you with the crime unsolved. Um, so, you know, but that this question comes up a lot. And I think that almost all crime writers, and that's a broader term than mystery, which I, I really kind of like, all try to make their books independent in terms of the plot. So what you miss if you start later is you miss character nuances and so forth that... And occasionally there's a series. I always warn people about the Amelia Peabody series. If you read any book later than the first book in that series, the entire point of the plot of the first book is ruined. It's oh. ruined because, you know, a person survives. And, mm. you know, therefore there's absolutely zero suspense in the first book. And so I always tried to catch people when they would come in and pick up on the later ones. I would like leap upon them and say, no, 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 you know, you have to read the first one. But that's weird, and that that um, that is not normally how it goes. Patrick, can you think of any others like that, where if you if you didn't read the first book or whatever, you'd forever you'd forever be not able to enjoy the suspense of the first book? I can't think of, not off the top of my head, but um, that's that's a constant challenge, I think, for writers to know how much to put in you know, so that you, you want to orient a new reader in your story, but you don't want to, you know, put the, the the old readers or the regular readers to sleep by putting too much in that they already know. Yeah. Yeah, I'm constantly finding, trying to find, like, creative ways to describe everyone physically for the first time. I, I noticed that they went with kind of a different um, cover sort of artwork design compared to the first, was it two books that had this is the first like uh, we did the uh, the cover change between after the hardcover of book two came out, but before the paperback. I see. Uh, and then they went back and did a new like a new paperback of Fortune Favors the Dead with a new with a new cover in this style. Because right. um, the first two were were very heavily noir. Um, uh, influence are very pulpy done by a, an artist uh, Rui Ricardo um, mm. who is who I loved and I love those covers um, but they but Doubleday was like we want to we want like more colorful and a little more commercial and also when you see them all together uh, they are clearly a series um, because they are just all you know around that single iconic image in the center Oh, and you'll notice that when I asked about only murders in the building, that you know, to some degree, I asked about it because of the cover art. Yeah, yeah, no, really cool design. Yeah. Um, did you, were you both aware? Well, Barbara, I'm sure you are. That Hard Case has reissued a, a lost Rex Stout. Yes, um, I wrote it up for the newsletter that we just did. In point of fact. Yeah. Is that yeah. is that out? I know I, it's been on my radar 
when it was like pre-order is it out now it is out now yeah um, the, the books i think actually come from england and they always show up in my experience later than the advertised date and i'm sure it's you know it's a a delivery issue um but yeah, no, I haven't read it yet, but but I was pleased. I'm going to ask him something else. I'm going to see if I can find out how many Rick Stout books, because this comes up all the time, actually were written before he wrote Dura Wolf, because I think it's a fascinating question. Well, interestingly, there, uh, Hardcase is doing another Rick Stout uh, next June um, called How Like a God, which is really interesting. It was published, it was reprinted by... Um, International Polygonics, I think, back in the 90s, but it's one of the few books that's written in second person. Oh, you wow. Know, yeah, you, you don't see that very often. No, no, no. So it's always been kind of an interesting curiosity in his career. So they're bringing that back out. Um, yeah. Well, who else, uh, who else do you like to read? Steve, do you have influences? From all over the place. I, I mean, I I'm a I love the 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 big names like the big contemporary names. Like I have I've read everything John Sanford's ever written. Um, Michael Conley. Uh, you mentioned Val McDermott. Um, Tana French. Uh, oh. It's just uh, it's a new book coming. I'm happy to say in this spring. Yeah, yeah I am so excited um, about that. Um, and then, like, I, I will still read, like, the classics, uh, like Agatha Christie, Raymond Chandler. Um, I really like uh, um, A.A. Fair, uh, who is the pen name of Earl Stanley Gardner when he's writing uh, the Cool and Lamb series. Birth of the Cool. Yeah, that's, that's, those are great. Like, those are so, like, voice-wise, so different from Perry Mason. Right. Uh, and it's, I think in the hard case, I think I discovered that through hard case because they read, they printed a like lost draft um oh. lost early draft of one of the aa fair novels yeah those are fun we've read i do a hard-boiled discussion group here at the store and uh, we've done a couple of those over the years and they're great yeah good fun well uh, i can't get a definitive answer i can get an answer that said there are 46 neural wolf stories most of which are novels, like 38 or something. And then he did write a bunch of short stories, didn't he? Yeah. Oh, there's a lot of short stories. Um, and they, pu they published in like sets of three. Um, right. Yeah. Are you possibly, Barbara, thinking of Earl Stanley Gardner? Because he did write an astonishing oh. number. Oh. I'm talking about the fact that Rex Stout wrote a, a lot of books before he wrote Fair to Lance, which is the gotcha. first Nero Wolf book. And at one point, I actually looked at it when Rex Stout died at age 88 he had more books in print than any other American author the Nero Wolf books that appeared in 22 languages and sold more than 45 million copies and he died in 1975 so it hasn't been it's been you know not quite 50 years but that's a long time you know that means there are readers that obviously you know weren't born when he died and therefore mm -hmm. may not know who he is but I can't have a partial bibliography on uh, fantastic fiction, but I don't think it must not be complete. It's all Neuro Wolf. Neuro yeah. Wolf, 1934 yeah. was the first one. If you scroll down, there are novels beginning in 1913. Right, exactly. Yeah, there are 
Well, we don't have to bore everybody with looking at it, but I am serious that, and, and I, I just mentioned that because I think it's it's so interesting that, you know, writers can move along and move along and and then all of a sudden some idea appears, you know, something comes up and um, and they're like reinvented and, you know, and found their voice, found their whatever character it is. And I, I think that, you know, I like to, say to writers, you know, even if you don't think everything's going as well as it could, you know, keep thinking because something may occur to you, like it did to rest out, you know, yep. that was suddenly. Um, John D. McDonald is a good example of that too. Yeah. You know, he wrote a ton of really excellent standalones before starting Travis McGee. And that really took off. Right. Some novelists are known for only one book. And some novelists are known for series. Um, a series identity is, in many ways, you know, the the immortality factors and they comes up. Oh yeah, like I know in used bookstores, Rex Stout gets filed under W so much because they think it's they just think you're that is funny. Well, Stephen, thank you very much for spending an hour with us. It's really thank good. you for having me. This is always oh, fun. Please. I'm glad we always get to do this. I will look forward to book five. Um, and for those of you who are looking for something really fun, we haven't, I haven't really mentioned how funny this book is. There's a real, there's a lot of humor in here. Will's got a big mouth. Funny. Um, so I really recommend um, this, you know, during the holidays when things can get tense, it's always great to have a book you can escape into that's just fun, you know, so this Absolutely. would be a great example for that. Anyway, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Steve. Happy holidays to everybody. And tomorrow is the first day of Hanukkah. So I will also say happy Hanukkah to those who are celebrating that. Great. Good night. Good night. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them, and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.